This is the Photography Podcast on Photography.ca, episode number 118, Manipulating Photojournalism, an interview with Carl Neustetter. Hey there, photo lovers. How's it going? And welcome to the 118th photography podcast on photography.ca. My name is Marco. And as always, we're coming to you from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. For today's show, we are going to talk about manipulation in photojournalism. And we have special guest, uh, Carl Neustetter, and he is the deputy editor of the Ottawa Citizen, which is the largest newspaper in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. And we're going to talk about all kinds of different types of manipulation in photojournalism. And that's coming up in like 30 seconds. Just want to thank people for their comments on our last podcast, number 117, where we had a really in-depth podcast with a Royce Howland and a Stephen Dwayne Darnell B and a Royce himself left comments comments in the podcast. Thanks so much for doing so. It's our favorite way to get them. Photography.ca forward slash blog. That allows you to leave a comment on any of our podcasts. So without further ado, let's get right into today's podcast with Carl Neustetter, the deputy editor of the Ottawa Citizen. Let's get right into it now. And I'd like to welcome a really special guest to our podcast today. Uh, today's guest is Carl Neustetter. And uh, Carl is coming to us uh, from Ottawa. He is the deputy editor of the Ottawa Citizen. Hi, Carl. Thanks so much for doing this podcast with us. Hi, Marco. It's great to be here. Good to talk to you. Thanks again. You know, why don't we just start by uh, just telling us a little bit what you do day to day, and then we'll get into talking about journalism. But uh, what's your day to day job like, so to speak? My day-to-day job and, and most of my career, I've been dealing uh, sort of with one foot in the editorial side with writers and editors and the other side in visual. So I supervise our photographers, our video, and our informational graphics here at The Citizen, amongst other things, and uh, did similar roles at the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail previously uh, to this. So uh, lots of decisions about what images to use, when to use them, where to use them uh, is part of our daily, our daily routine here. Awesome. You're a great guest. <laughs> I could tell just right away you're a great guest just because you have so much experience in exactly what we're going to be talking about. Photojournalism is changing. Seems to me it's changing anyway. And I really wanted to talk about that fact um, throughout this next ooh, 25 minutes or so. Um, you've been doing this for a while, so you've likely seen some changes. You know, one of the things that have really come to light lately, and I don't know if people are making more of it than it is, but there is a grand competition in photojournalism, and it's called the World Press Photo. And this year there, as you well know, there is some controversy about that photo, you know, uh, whether it was fake, whether it was too manipulated. And um, I guess I'd love to get your opinion on that photo. I have uh, my own opinions, and uh, people on our forum, we have a photography forum, in case you didn't know, also have some uh, strong opinions about that photo, but I'd like to get yours, Carl. What do you think about that photo? When I first saw it, I thought it was a stunning, a stunning picture, and it uh, had a lot of the qualities that you see in this competition over the years. It was in the moment, uh, you know, an incredible moment in time. It was disturbing in, in, in a lot of ways. You don't often see dead children in, uh, in, in a photograph, um, so it was striking and provocative in that way, which I think tends to in gravi- judges gravitate towards that that sort of thing. Uh, and it, it was a real. There's a lot of emotion in it. The father in the foreground. Uh, there's you know look at each face in that photograph, and you see a, a, a different emotion. There's anger. There's just complete despair. 
uh, and of course the faces of the children, which there are no words for that, right? That's what where the power of a photo really comes through. So I really, I really like the photo. Um, you know, if you can like a terrible subject like that, the sense that it's a tremendous photo. I thought it was uh, uh, photographically. I thought it was it was very good. There was part of me that said, oh, I've seen this before. Um, but I think it's one of the challenges for photojournalists to go into situations like that and try and find something new. I mean, we have these tropes about, you know, here's a war photo, here's a battleground photo, here's a, a happy ch child photo, and here is a, uh, the Middle East. You know, how many new, how can we see the Middle East in, 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 in new ways? Uh, and I thought he succeeded in, in, in stopping us. Uh, and making us think uh, a little bit more. And of course, every photo out of this part of the world is, is, is polarizing as, as well. But I did think he succeeded, uh, the photojournalist Paul Hansen, I thought he succeeded in making us stop and think and look again, which is what a photojournalist should do. I have to agree with you. The first time I saw the photo, I was captured by it. Um, it's, it's a decisive moment photo, you know, and uh, it's very, very striking. I have to say personally that when I looked at the photo for the very first time, I was drawn to the lighting on the faces, and I didn't think the photo looked 100% natural. I thought, the first time I saw it, that it had a, a cinematographic feel to it. And to my eye, and I have to be honest, I'm not a photojournalist at all, you know, I'm a fine art photographer, I do general photography, but I'm not a photojournalist. But I felt bothered by the photo because personally, I thought that it looked a little too cinematographic for me. Someone on our forum made the comment that it looked like Annie Leibovitz shot the photo in a way. And without, with the greatest of respect to the photographer that took it, the post-processing part a couple of us, or some of us, many of us, feel that maybe it was a little bit too manipulated. Do you not see that point of view at all when you look at that photo? I absolutely do, and I, I, I don't have any, um, I actually don't have any ethical concerns with this photo. I think what he did with the photo after uh, the photo has been going on for longer than Photoshop, and this has always been a debate. Um, once the controversy over was it a composite was debunked, Right. That was an unfair, well, I mean, not, not necessarily unfair, but they, the, the, the photojournalist got a lot of flack um, and had to, you know, they had to go back into the photo and prove that it wasn't a composite. So once that controversy went away, I, I think then you're just back on the same debate about how much manipulation of, of an image after the fact is worthy. And I don't have any ethical concerns with it. It's he, he, he has, uh, he has uh, you know, pushed that to the to, to the max in this photo, but I think he actually does himself some disservice as a photojournalist with it because he's lost some grittiness from it, from having it so ethereal and so cinematic, to use your, your words, it loses actually some of the grittiness that a, a reality photo, a realistic photo, a in situ war battlefield kind of photo actually benefits from. If it's too clean, you in some ways uh, lose the moment, right? It's, it's too shiny, it's too perfect, and this is not a perfect situation. So ethically, I don't have a problem with it. I question the choices, I question his choice of working it too much in terms of delivering us. A photojournalist's job is to deliver us into the moment as much as possible, uh, into the reality of that. And by making it a little less real with that ethereal lighting, I think he 
maybe did himself and the photograph a little bit of a disservice. Cool. I appreciate the, the honest opinion. Quick question for you, and then we're going to move on. Do you think there is pressure on photojournalists in general to produce more and more striking images? And, and may this pressure lead to the temptation of over-stylizing photos? And when I'm talking about photos for the time being, I'm only talking about photojournalism photos, nothing but photojournalism, where people tend to want reality, in my opinion, more so than in other genres. I'm not sure if, they, if the pressure is increasing or not. And most of the photojournalists that, that I know, and I am not one, I should just say that, I'm, I'm a photo editor, but I don't, uh, I don't shoot. Most of them that I, that, that, that I know don't feel too much pressure that they want to jump in and be, say, trendy or, or, or feel pushed to, to, to make their photos uh, more and more different and, and stand out. I mean, that said, there are a zillion photos a day coming out now. The world is awash in, awash in images, so standing out does put some pressure on any photographer, uh, I'd imagine. But most photojournalists I know are very concerned about the story. That's their, draw, their, their, their job. They're trying to tell a story and, and trying to get into uh, a place or with find people who will uh, help them tell that story. Um, and yes, they're concerned about aesthetics for sure. And they're concerned and, and, and they're interested. Many of them are interested in, you know, oh, what, what are the new tools that I can use to create and, and, and help me tell this story? But I don't see an overwhelming, um, I don't see an overwhelming trend to people finding that they're feeling pushed to try gimmicks or try and to, to stand out. Although there's been, I'm sure we'll talk about it, plenty of instances where other people have jumped on photojournalists who do, do try some of the newer tools and, and what some photographers see as, as gimmicks. Yeah, for sure. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Okay, interesting to know. So you don't expect, actually I'll just question you, in the next five to ten years, would you expect to see more, let's use my word, cinematographic type journalistic images, or do you think this was just a one-off? Oh, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a one-off, but I do think these. I, I do think a lot of these debates that have been sparked by this photo have been around with us for years, and even in the pre-digital world, pre-digital time, as well. Um, there's the situation a couple of years ago when a hipstamatic a series of photos using hipstamatic was used and won Pulitzer, and so there was a lot of criticism then about using you know filters and Instagram-style filters. Uh, on things, and that drives a lot of um, a lot of controversy. And I'll be very interested as new and younger photographers come up, being sort of digital natives uh, and using these tools more. I, I think you're going to see a change in aesthetic from that, rather than a really conscious decision of uh, existing ph photographers to to change their ways or try new things just for this for the sake of it. I think it's uh, just those younger photographers coming up in a different world who are going to change the, the aesthetic naturally. I kind of agree with you, but how are the photo editors going to take to this change? You know? And what about filters? Let's talk about them for a few minutes. When you take a news type story with, you know, Hipstamatic or, you know, Instagram, some of the filters really do actually change the content of the image. Is there a general, I guess there probably isn't a general consensus. I'm guessing it varies from, you know, agency to agency. What's your opinion on the use of filters? I agree with you that they can, some of them can fundamentally change the reality of a photo and have to be used, I would say, in a news photojournalism context with extreme caution and purpose, not just because it's cool. 
Um, and there's been a lot of debate uh, over that. Um, there is a great online uh, uh, debate on Society of News Design recently where a lot of uh, where four photo editors talked about this. And, and you see the difference in culture between, between newsrooms. The LA Times, for example, it's just a categorical no, uh, no filters. We, you know, we try and deliver close to reality as we can and filters take that, take that away. So we do not, you know, LA Times says we do not use filters. And you see other organizations say, uh, saying, yes, we share the same regard. Our, our, first, our first purpose is to show reality. We're a news organization. Um, we don't want to mislead anybody. Um, and filters can really do that in some cases. But don't shut them out categorically because they, have, they could have their place. I think one of the interesting things that I'll be looking forward to in the next few years is the sort of public perception of them. I mean, you've got millions of people using these filters uh, on their own phones and on their own photographs. So they'll know one when they see one. So as, the, as our readership, the people who are reading our, our websites and reading our newspapers and magazines get more familiar with them, they'll, they'll know they, would, they won't necessarily feel manipulated by seeing one. But I don't think we're there yet. And I think newsrooms, the, the sort of professionalization of photojournalism in the last 30 years has taken us to a place where thankfully there are actually ethics codes and guidelines about when and when we don't manipulate a photograph. Um, and uh, I think we shouldn't throw that out too, too quickly. It's what I often tell photographers or designers, if you want to use some sort of gimmick, tell me why you're using it, not just because it's cool, but it can actually provide a purpose to what you're trying to communicate. And if you can't, if you can't communicate that, if you can't give me a reason to use it, I, I don't see why you should. I'm not sure why. I guess I'm not sure why you would ever need to use it, really. Um, especially the some of the especially some of the Instagram stuff, in a news like capacity, because it does fundamentally change the reality. It changes the lighting of the image. So whereas we talked about you know the winning photo press image uh, just a few minutes ago, and you suggested that you were okay with that level of manipulation, surely some of the Instagram filters. They distort reality. Absolutely, I would. I would say. I mean, just to be very clear, I would never say to, to my photographers that they should shoot in Instagram for in news. Not ever. Not in a news situation. There are other. Um, but yet we are. To be fair, and in large publications, we we're seeing them in like the New York Times. We're seeing Instagram used in the New York Times. They're a pretty well respected organization. Oh, absolutely, and and they have some of the highest standards of anyone uh, of anyone, and they have even a public editor who who takes them to task on on inconsistencies. So, but what I would say is really important distinction there is between a news photograph and say a portrait or a studio or a, or a created event. There's a big distinction there. If I'm out covering uh, a report, a reporter, a photographer out in the community covering a news event, say there's a you know a crime or something like that. We would never, ever use filters on that or Instagram. The stuff you saw in the New York Times were portraits, baseball players, and things like that, where it's clearly a, a created studio uh, kind of effect. It was not a news photograph. So it, it would be like the artistic license that any photographer might take on creating interesting portraits, um, which you don't need Instagram to do. We've seen those kind of portraits created uh, with different kinds of lighting and studio effects and, photo and Photoshop uh, filters and things after the fact. So it's not necessarily Instagram. 
And I, and actually, if I could interrupt you for a sec, I actually agree with you in that case. But then again, you know, you talk about the same agency, you know, photo essays, one in particular, A Grunt's Life, The New York Times. That's different, right? Because that's not a portrait. That is more news-like photojournalism. And yet that was shot hipstamatic style, I believe. You could see pretty serious vignetting going on, definitely playing with the reality in my book. Absolutely. That was a really interesting case, and I think a more interesting case than the World Press photo that we talked about uh, earlier, uh, because it really does polarize people. I mean, when I look at photos like that, I'm mostly like a fine art guy. I see a lot of fine art in these photos, you know? Absolutely. And a fair amount of what I would say, non-reality. You know, I, 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 I distort the reality all the time in my photos, but, but it, they're not news. I agree. I agree. And it was, it's interesting to read the, um, like, I, I would say if I had to put a stake in the ground, I would say, yeah, those went a little too far. And if you read what the uh, photographer said about those uh, images, one of them was that he just said he didn't want to take out his big professional large uh, DSLR cameras to shoot some of those scenes because they would have interrupted uh, interrupted the flow of what was going on. It's easier to document things by being unobtrusive. And my response to that was, well, you didn't have to shoot in hips with hipstamatic. You're, um, echoing, you're echoing my thought process. Exactly right. You could have yeah. shot it just regular and not had all kinds of weird vignetting, which makes yeah. the image look better, artificially better, in my opinion. Yeah. But He also makes a strong case, though, in, 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 the, in the interview that I, or the statement that I read by him, he makes a strong case that photojournalism does have an aesthetic portion to it. Um, and that the, that the filters that he used, and you have to choose them, right? It's not just random. He's choosing the ones he wanted to use. So it was part of his vision about how he wanted to create that. And I, I, can, I can see that argument. And he even pointed to some other uh, award winners shot conventionally uh, and said, is this any different than the uh, intense manipulation of a photo after the fact? in the darkroom, well, in the digital darkroom, or the, in the old days, the darkroom, about uh, leaving um, a lot of, uh, uh, like using dodging and burning and, and, uh, and, other, and other darkroom style effects and Photoshop effects to help you tell your story, to say, to pull the eye to a particular part of the photograph over another part of the photo, photograph. So I think that was a valid point by him. But I do question I mean, hipstamatic is you don't have that kind of control. You're choosing a filter and it is overlaying something. I think it's a bit different that when you do it after the fact, you're actually consciously saying, I want this part of the photograph to stand out. I want the other part of the photograph to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burn that down uh, because I want the eye to move here. I think it's a more conscious thing when it's done afterwards. And of course, as we discussed with the World Press photo, you can go too far with that. So I think Blindly using uh, pre-made uh, uh, filters is still an outlier in photo in photojournalism. I don't think it's a categorical never, never, ever use them. Um, but boy, you got to have a really good reason, and I haven't really seen a lot of good reasons yet. I agree with your logic again, Carl. Um, maybe my more cynical side is suggesting that you're going to start seeing them more and more often. You know, now that they've been introduced over the past few years, and they do add an aesthetic and often they just make the photo look nicer and people like looking at nice photos readers like them and maybe more you know marketing and sales can be made by having nicer images i don't even know if, if that plays into it at all but i personally would expect to see more filtering in photojournalistic images from now on now that the line has been drawn by someone 
I mean, personally, I'd like to see some sta- – I don't expect to see standardization anytime soon between news agencies worldwide, but that would be something interesting. You know, if, if news agencies got together and said, we will accept this, we won't accept this. I think you're going to see it from agency to agency and newsroom to newsroom. Uh, you're seeing it already. I mean, some some newsrooms are very categorical about don't use it. Others are saying, well, well, you know, it's out in the it's out in the public zeitgeist now. It's in the public consciousness. One thing that we deal with, especially online, is you know journalism is changing so much. We get a ton of content from our readers now. They're out. They send us photos. I mean, often it's a you know a picture of their dog or a sunset or something like that. But we sometimes get news photos from them as well. And sometimes, and more and more often, I bet you those pictures are going to be uh, taken with Instagram uh, in them. So you, you, we are already seeing our reader-generated content have filters. And in fact, we engage with our readers with, you know, a lot of papers like, like us will say, you know, oh, share your best, uh, share your best uh, senator, Ottawa senator's fan photos with us on Instagram. And they all have filters on them, right? So it's, it, there will be a normalization of these, of these filters. People will understand a bit better if they're using them themselves that, yeah, that was taken with Instagram and I expect an Instagram uh, photo like that. But I think they'll also hold us of the photos that we shoot to a higher standard to say, you know, I don't care that the picture looks much better. I just want to see what's going on in this news news picture. So I, I, I think we'll have uh, a double standard in, in, in a good sense. Interesting. Okay. Interesting point of view. Let's chat for a couple of minutes about maybe some famous cases where we also think they went a bit too far. One of them that sticks in my mind, maybe because I'm of a certain age demographic, is the O.J. Simpson photo. And for me, you've been at this longer than I have, um, but for me, maybe it was a polarizing picture, a polarizing incident. Can we talk about that image for a little bit? Sure. I mean, uh, what springs to mind right away is, you know, you don't need to be in the Instagram world for that kind of debate to, to come out. I mean, that was all in the pre-Instagram world when that when that photo uh, came out. So um, just to bring people back or perhaps to bring them back to uh, a time before they were even uh, born <laughs> in some cases, making ourselves sound really old here. But um, yeah, so time uh, when OJ was uh, was arrested, Time magazine and Newsweek and a lot of other magazines put his image on the cover and time did a lot of, uh, I don't know what you call it, post-production yeah. <laughs> and they made him look very dark and, uh, menacing with it. And I think they, so they opened themselves up to a whole bunch of charges of making him look worse, making, implying that being blacker was worse. So they got a lot of racism charges, uh, about, about that, and it was quite the fury at the time. And of course, other magazines had OJ on the cover, so there was all these points of comparison. It's like, well, look at Newsweek; he looks like he looks. He doesn't look uh, three shades darker and unshaven, and and that sort of thing. So people notice, uh, which is good, which is really good. You know, a lot of our readers keep us in check, right? When they say, and and, and it's ironic sometimes because we get calls and emails and things to this day where people say, hey, you faked that photo to us. Or they say like, oh yeah, you've got filters on that or you faked it or that's a composite. And we have to say, no, we didn't, you know, that's a real photo. Uh, And that's the downside of all the filters and and things too. And, and, And what happened to the world press photo this year as well is, you know, people are almost expecting in this day and age of digital that we are regularly faking stuff or at least manipulating it. But you don't have to go back 
that long and to O.J. Simpson to see that these, a lot of these debates have been with us uh, for, for a long, long time. And you can go right back to the beginning of photography. Uh, it's easy to find on the internet, g- Googling uh, you know, famous, famous photo hoaxes of, of finding manipulated photographs uh, going right back to the beginning of photography. So it's, it's nothing new, um, but I would say it's access- ex- accelerating. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's totally not new. I also come from the darkroom world, revealing a little bit of my age, and no, you know, famous black and white uh, photos where you know bleach was actually used on the final product to draw attention to to the whites in the image, which is where the eye tends to rest on the image. So this has been going on for a while, and I suggest it will continue to go on. I think the reason we're having this discussion here and now is because it's just getting so easy to do it. Um, the tools to make people look better, the tools to uh, eliminate distractions, they're just getting better and better and better. So we're seeing more and more better images. And some of those images are probably making us suspicious, even when, like you say, they, they may not have been manipulated at all. I think a lot of us are getting cynical. Uh, maybe it's from the fashion world where we, we hear a lot of stories about, you know, how nothing is real, how everything is over airbrushed. And I think most of us, myself for sure, we're just getting used to seeing overly retouched images and very retouched images, but we're still more concerned when it's happening with news, with what is supposed to be reality. And of course, you know, just defining reality is a whole other podcast, you know, because, because everyone interprets through their lens. We interpret, we use different lenses, just the lens can manipulate the reality. And then you, you get into exposure and then you get into post-processing. So it's just all about the level of reality and what we're willing to accept. I think that's a great point. You know, we've never, photography has never managed to a hundred percent replicate reality and it probably never will right and you so there's all these various levels altering reality and you know i guess because i've been 20 years in the news business i'm a, i'm 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 more of a purist in the sense of you know we should be really strict and uh, about not manipulating things than you know to err on the side of of reality and not manip- manipulating so even though you, you give the example of fashion i really you know that stuff really bugs me even though it's ubiquitous now, it still really bugs me. You know, I, I'm a father of two uh, two girls about to become teenagers, and I just hate the fact that models are routine, routinely made skinny, re- routinely made perfect uh, in there. And and I get a taste of that uh, in my own job because uh, one of the things we do here at the Citizen is we have a quarterly style magazine and uh, and website where we do a lot of fashion and food and feature style photography. So there's the pressure there. Uh, from some of the photographers who, who, who fashion photographers who, who submit, they'll work all their photos before submitting them. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of work being done on, on people. Um, and, and the standards seem to be, the standards seem to, seem to be different. And I try and keep them as close to our news sensibility as I, as I can, even though the overwhelming norm now in fashion photography is to touch up absolutely everything. And to the point of changing people's body shapes and removing things and adding things, and uh, but it still bothers me. And I guess that's my news, uh, my news past uh, getting to me. But likely you've you just come to accept that as as a fact of life now. Some when when we control the shoots with our own photographers, um, they're pretty they're pretty clear. They don't uh, clean up. They don't clean up a lot. Um, they don't they don't clean up people's blemishes, for example. Uh, they are who they are. 
but we have some we have some fashion we have some freelancers who submit their their work all already done and 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 touched up and I see a lot of work being uh, done on that and and so it's a bit of a vigilance game or challenge uh, to make sure that nothing is over the top but one you know an interesting thing about people's acceptance about this you know Google has just come out with this new Google Plus photo tool package. And one of the things it does is it touches up your skin, uh, takes, blem- takes blemishes out uh, without even asking you. It will just do it. It'll choose your, it'll choose your best, what it considers its best photo, your best photos um, out of a series. And it will even take a group photo and give you a composite of all the best faces and just does this automatically. So it is actually generating a photo that you didn't take. It's taking three photos and putting the best faces on them. And, and Windows has been advertising, or Microsoft, I guess, advertising uh, its cloud software that does much the same thing, where you can swap out a, a nice, uh, you know, a, a blinking face, uh, or somebody who's uh, blink, blinking or has their eyes closed with another similar shot where they've got their eyes open. So people in their own power now with very, very easy to use tools can do the kinds of things that we would never do uh, in in a news in a news setting. So that'll be interesting too to see whether people come to accept that kind of thing or whether they'll have a different standard. Say like it's okay for uh, you know my granny's birthday party that we all look great, but I wouldn't want my newspaper to do that. It's an awesome point, Carl. And you know, just if I could just go, if I could just re not rebut, if I could just add to that, yeah. I think I think it's also happening in in other subtle ways. You know, there are softwares now that photographers use all the time. And we're not just talking about Photoshop and Lightroom, but even Lightroom, to an extent, is somewhat guilty. Uh, when you, when, just by importing a photograph into Lightroom, depending on what your default settings are, you've changed the tonal quality of that image. There's another uh, software that um, I keep hearing about and that I've used, DxO Optics. Fantastic software. Fantastic. But the second you bring your raw file into that software, it's already cleaned up a good part of that image for you. And in my opinion, a lot of times, it's not giving you reality, it's giving you enhanced reality right away. So it's, again, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that is manipulating the image or not. I'm just suggesting that, you know, images are, like you're suggesting, automatic things are happening to them even before we work on them ourselves. That's the trend I don't like because, like I was saying before, if you, if a photojournalist has a photo and then they take it after the fact and and do some of the traditional techniques uh, that even existed in the darkroom days uh, to them that enhances the photo in its storytelling capability, I don't have a problem with that. I, I do have a big problem with these automated uh, things. You know, who is deciding? What algorithm is deciding that my skin should be smoother than it than it actually is? It says a lot about our culture. I think that these some of these tools even exist. Um, and as a, if I were if I were a photographer, a pref, professional photographer, I don't know if I'd want to take uh, something into a software that's going to make some decisions for me rather than let me do them myself. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Just unfortunately, like almost every photographer that I know that's a pro uses either something like Lightroom or Bridge for cataloging. But with with presets, especially in Lightroom, you know, depending on how you like your images, you can often have them spiffied up just by opening them. And Lightroom is a major software. It's not like, you know, a piece of... It's not like Instagram where you could choose to use it or not. A good percentage of photographers that I know open every single photograph that they make with Lightroom. And depending on what presets, they may have Lightroom 
due to their images upon opening them, they may change the image at the outset, and thereby, you know, reality is again distorted somewhat. Well, like I agree with you. That's really, uh, really concerning. And uh, you know, coming back to the photo that sparked this uh, podcast in the fir- first place, you know, that photojournalist Paul Hansen had to supply his raw file to the judges after the fact to prove that it wasn't a composite. But, you know, to go back to that original file to say, here's the one that has not been altered by me, by a program, by anything. This is the uh, this is the way it landed on the in the in the camera. So and seems, as you say, every step beyond that adds a little bit of distortion, a little a little bit of unreality. So you get into that sort of slippery slope argument of uh, how much is too much. And I would hope that most photographers, especially in the news photojournalism business, keep their photos uh, as unaltered as they can through the storage process and through the processing um, of them. I mean, I agree with you. I can tell you before uh, we let you go in a couple minutes, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I spoke with uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Mo Duaron, earlier uh, this week, and he told me something pretty interesting. He was telling me that, like, throughout the 80s and 90s, very often, if there was distracting elements and negatives, they would just be, like, retouched. We're talking news negatives, that, you know, if it needed to fit in a certain space and there was maybe a distracting element in the background, routinely this was done. It wasn't talked about, but it was done routinely across many newspapers that that he knows of so like i'm wondering if maybe now you know we're really we're really trying to draw a line in the sand of maybe what should or shouldn't be but that was brand new news to me i gotta tell you well i can give you a little bit even more background on that and and, um uh the there's this assumption that somehow we've always been pure in photojournalism and it's only now that you know things are unraveling in the digital world but I can tell you there was a real professionalization of photojournalism in the last 30 years if I working at the Toronto Star the Globe and here at the Citizen if I go back into the photo files the hard copies from from the 50s and the 40s and even the 60s and 70s you can see the heavy heavy editing and complete masking out of distracting elements that went on uh, in those in those days, uh, it was all fairly crude looking, actually, too, uh, compared to the seamless kind of effects that you can do uh, today. So I think we came out of that period in, into the into the eighties and nineties and, and and into now, where there's a there was quite a raise a rise in standards uh, and professionalization, where and, and a lot of photojournalists were saying, no, we have to be more professional, and we're not removing inconvenient. Uh, elements uh, out of that so but that's the but there's certainly a huge a long tradition of manipulating photos in in photojournalism in 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 newspapers it, it's uh we certainly haven't been pure all these years there's no there's no certain golden age that we're that we're uh careening away from here yeah i think maybe we're just like starting to define it now and maybe hopefully you know some of the larger news agencies can get on board with maybe some type of pact or some type of standards that everyone can agree on some large news agencies already have their own standards but they may differ by slight margins with other news agencies and it just might be nice if everyone were more on the same page yeah i i'm pretty i you know i'm pretty confident about about that uh, what i've seen in during during my career uh in you know large news organizations like canadian press associated press reuters um the big american newspapers and big canadian newspapers two uh, all of them have some sort of code of ethics uh, for writers 
editors and photographers about the dangers of altering uh, reality and and, uh, and and professional practice, which you didn't see prior to the 80s, really, uh, I don't think. And that has helped enormously to have some pretty similar standards across uh, across the board. And boy, people have been caught out. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, there was a picture of a fan uh, nude in the stands in, I think, an Alberta hockey game of some kind. And there was a very, very convenient vertical bar and, the, and uh, it was taken from behind the glass. So one of the separators of the glass was very conveniently put in the, in the, in the place where uh, uh, the, the, the nude person's private parts. And immediately, it was a the picture, I think, distributed by Canadian Press, I'm not sure who, who took the picture. But it was immediately called out as a, as a manipulated photo. Um, so I think not only are the standards out there, but the people who are shooting and in the business are vigilant about calling out the fakes. It doesn't happen very often, but when they do, and that's a great thing too about the internet, right? I mean, there's a millions of people out there who are you know, eagle eyes uh, and, and catching uh, the fakes. And sometimes it goes overboard, like the world press photo was accused of being fake. It turned out not to be. There's uh, a whole crowd of uh, vigilant people watching, which I think can only uh, help us in, in, in the long run. I agree with you. The more people, you know, call out things that they don't appear real, the more news agencies will likely produce real stuff if people cry too hard against the fake stuff. I think, too, that, then you know, news organizations are under enough uh, pressure these days just to survive that, uh, you know, credibility is really our currency. It's all we have, right? If people don't trust us to write and photograph reality, they're not going to come to our websites. They're not going to buy our newspapers and magazines, and then we're, we're done, right? So, while the internet world might be full of uh, fakery and, and uh, you know, fake videos of, you know, hawks stealing children and, or whatever that one was. I think that was one was out of Montreal. Yeah, exactly. Correctly. You know, the internet's full of that stuff. Um, we'd be crazy in the, in the news media business to join that, right? I mean, if anything, we're going to be more and more vigilant because that's, again, it's our currency. You know, people in an internet world where they don't know what the providence of a lot of things are and what you can trust and what you can't trust, we're putting things out there that we, that we want people to trust. So we get more vigilant as the rest of the internet gets maybe less vigilant. So, you know, people, more people may assume we're faking things or that there are more fake things out there. But, um, I think, uh, people in the business are, you know, most of the people I've met in this business have really high ethical standards about uh, portraying reality and sticking close to it um, and, and being quite vigilant about it. So I'm, I'm enthused about that. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely good to hear. I, you know, uh, there's obviously two sides to everything. There's obviously, you know, silly news agencies as well. I'm not going to name any of them, but <laughs> there are legitimate silly news agencies that just don't seem to report reality and don't seem to sh to use the most realistic images likely because they have a market that they are satisfying and it's profitable to do so. So it's nice to hear that some mainstream, you know, especially the biggest, you know, most reputable players are, are likely playing in this way. But you are competing against some less desirable uh, media outlets out there, of course. Yeah, and I think we always have. Um, you know, there's always been the sort of News of the World, uh, National Enquirer kind of publications, even in the pre-digital world. This might obviously way more intense in the digital and the digital sphere, but you know people come to uh, 
news sites like ours, like The Citizen or The Globe and Mail or The Toronto Star, for reality. They may go elsewhere for their entertainment. So that's what we have to deliver them. Great info, Carl. Really appreciate it. Uh, before we let you go, let me just ask you something. They kind of canned a whole news agency in Chicago last week. I wanted to get uh, your opinion about that. We're talking about uh, the Chicago Sun-Times, which is the second largest uh, newspaper in Chicago, I believe. And they just canned their whole photojournalism staff, including a Pulitzer winner. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, I was pretty taken aback when I read that news. Um, a couple of thoughts on, on that. Going back to what I was saying before, I mean, we differentiate ourselves by, uh, in, in the news business by having quality, quality writers, quality editors, and quality, quality images. So I'm not sure what the Sun-Times is playing at. You know, will they be successful? They've obviously taken a gamble here on the fact that you know, maybe people don't care how good an image are, an, an image is, as long as it's a, an image. Uh, so I'll be interested to see that play out. One thing I think has not come up with that is that they are, in some ways, going back to a way a lot of newsrooms worked before there were professional photojournalists on staff. Most newspapers that I've worked for, um, and this is long predates me, as old as I am, never had staff. They always used freelancers, and there'd be a whole string of freelancers all sort of lined up every, every day hoping to get some assignments. Whether the Sun Times can uh, you know, rely on enough uh, freelancers to satisfy their needs, that'll be interesting to see. Um, but I can tell you if they're relying on reporters and others to shoot iPhone pics, that only goes so far. I know on our experience in our newsroom, all our photographers carry iPhones. And they file often an iPhone picture at the beginning of an assignment so it can go up on a website very quickly. But you're not going to be at a crime scene or a hockey game shooting anything of use with an iPhone. You need, to, you need the longer lenses and, uh, you, need, and you need the eye of an of a experienced photographer to take anything but the most basic informational shot. When you read, you know, there was a memo circulating, an alleged memo, uh, I think it's supposedly real by now, an alleged memo floating that they're going to train, you know, freelancers, or they're going to train their remaining staff on how to use iPhones properly. Oh, that hurt me. Did it hurt you to read that memo? Yeah, it absolutely it sort of hit me in the gut because I think like, wow, such a, a, a walk away from quality uh, and an, practically an art form in, in photojournalism. I would say to them, though, like they absolutely should train all their all their reporters to shoot well in using their iPhones because, boy, the more people you've got out there, the more able you are to, to, to shoot video and shoot pictures on scene. Most news organizations have trained their reporters to use uh, iPhones in a basic way. And all the young reporters coming in, they all know how to use them already. And, and, uh, uh, and, and training them to get, to get better is only a, only a win. But I do not think they replace a professional photojournalist at all. They're at best a supplement to a professional photojournalist. You're just not going to get the same kind of result. I was actually uh, just chatting with Mo. I was thinking the best and smartest thing that the Tribune could do would be to hire some of those photographers and say, we're about quality. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a great, it'll be a great point of differentiation uh, for the Tribune if they, uh, if they can do that. And we'll see. We'll see if people care and notice a, and notice a difference. I think they will. Um, will it be enough for them to not read the Sun-Times anymore? We'll see. I'm not sure they will, but I'm hoping they will. I think on that, uh, we'll end the podcast on, on the hope that they will. <laughs> and I just wanted to thank you uh, so much uh, for your time, Carl. Really appreciate you doing this. Thank you, Marco. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to, uh, to talk to you today. It's a lot of great 
interesting issues in photojournalism these days. Appreciate it again, Carl. Thanks so much. And I'd like to thank Carl Neustetter one last time for sharing that uh, great info with us. Carl was kind enough to let me know after the interview that a slight error was made um, when he was talking about the uh, streaking guy in the hockey game. The streaker's private parts weren't cloned out. They were just black boxed out. So just wanted to clarify that. You should know, as hinted in the podcast, that this podcast is going to be a two-parter. Sometime next week, part two will be released, and it's going to feature an interview with uh, one of Carl's colleagues, uh, Mo Duaron, who is a photojournalist. And we're going to talk about similar topics and uh, get Mo's take on the uh, situation. In terms of assignments on the forum, we already have some really creative submissions. Our regular assignment is a pet's perspective or shooting from a low angle. And our level two assignment is shooting images at F16 or smaller. Already some really creative submissions, so I do encourage you to submit if you've never done so before and resubmit if you've done it. If you're a lurker on our forum, I encourage you to join. We're a really friendly bunch and we love to share and learn. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We hope you got some good uh, food for thought uh, this last podcast. And hopefully your eye will become more attuned to images that uh, may or may not have been manipulated. But aside from all that, thanks so much for listening, everyone. And as always, keep on shooting. Bye for now.